A lot of good things have come out about the hydroxy. A lot of good things have come out. And you'd be surprised at how many people are taking it. I happen to be taking it, totally unrelated, but they take the z or the Zithromycin for possible infection. But the zinc you do take. So I'm taking the two, the zinc and the hydroxy. And all I can tell you is, so far, I seem to be okay. All Hello. right. <laughs> Welcome back to the Last Week in Medicine. I'm Stephen Jenkins here with Austin Rupp. Hello. Hello, everyone. <laughs> you just love making that sound. I do. I do. Uh, so our last episode was April 29th. Uh, and somehow another three weeks have slipped away. In <laughs> last three weeks in medicine. Last in the, two to four weeks in medicine. <laughs> in this is black hole of COVID time. Um, but we're going to try to fight the inertia. And uh, one day we would like to review some non-COVID literature. But today is not that day. <laughs> so, but yeah, what's what's new with you, Austin? Not a lot. Um, Growing a mustache. Oh, yeah, I do have a mustache. Try to picture that. Um, I'm hip now, just so our readers know, or listeners know. <laughs> um, I haven't been doing much. I mean, it's biking season now in Utah, so no more talk of skiing, but been doing some road rides, doing some mountain rides. Mm. Hero dirt, as they say, wow. a little bit out there. Um, I don't really know what that means either. I don't like mountain biking as much as I like skiing. Let the record reflect that, but um, been getting out a little bit. Putzing around in my garden, watching The Last Dance, bemoaning its its ending. Yeah, um, I didn't watch any of it. Yeah, you, you really should. I mean, it's great. I heard the last episodes were interesting with just the 97, 98 finals. Yeah, for jazz fans, it was a, yeah. a, a sorrowful time. Like um, reliving that. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Well, but, is there something about... Jordan didn't really have the flu. He just ate too much pizza. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. There's all kinds of conspiracy theories. Like, yeah, initially he, everyone said he had the flu. The story him and his camp put forth is that his pizza was poisoned, that they were staying in Park City, and then five guys showed up, delivered his pizza late at night, and that he was <laughs> sick afterwards. Other people say he was hungover. He, was like, just, he ate, like, an entire pizza the night before a game and probably was up all night with the runs. Right, 1997, 10 p.m. Park City pizza. Like, one joint was open, they got it for him, and he ate the whole thing reportedly, so... Yeah. Who knows what really happened. But so he didn't really have the flu, though. He did not have the flu. Maybe he had food poisoning. Like, so Maybe many he just people ate too much. have tried to be like him. Like, I'm sick, flu but game. I'm going to power through yeah. it anyway. And it was all, it's just a myth. There's there's some interesting articles out there pizza. about, like, why would he change? Why would he put forth this narrative now when everyone revered him for the flu game? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's weird. I agree. But really, he could do no wrong. Like, he'll, he's the best. <sighs> and whatever he says... I'll believe, and he can do nothing bad or wrong. I disagree. <laughs> He's done a lot of bad stuff. I guess let the <laughs> let, let us say that also. But anyway, I love. He was good at basketball. He was. He was the greatest at basketball. Okay. Okay. I can sure whatever. <laughs> what have you been up to? You've done no, some, I some mean, redeeming yeah. things. Redeeming. No, we got a new puppy. Oh, I don't remember if we talked Margo. about that last time. If we didn't, we should have. It's a pandemic puppy. <laughs> uh, definitely got in on that because I already have a pet problem. And uh, been wanting a, a, a new dog for a while. And my wife said, well, it has to be a Bernice Mountain <laughs> dog, which is absurd. Yeah, yeah. But then I got on the classifieds and I found one. 
and I went and looked at it, and I came home with it. <laughs> and so, she's her doubling. What's her doubling time? <laughs> uh, yeah, she's growing fast. She's like four months old, fifty pounds easily. She's a big girl, and she's got she's gonna probably be like over a hundred pounds for sure. But she she's kind of like a little bear. Uh, kids love her, so nice. Yeah, we love Margot. Yeah. And then uh, just trying to get outside. It's been interesting with, like, COVID, you know, we've kind of shifted in our state to, like, it's okay to go outside and do outdoor activities as long as you're avoiding crowds. And so, you know, I've been trying to take my kids camping and stuff like that. So we went down to Capitol Reef, Goblin Valley. And it's interesting because, you know, the rest of the state is kind of doing the same thing. Like, no matter where you go outside there's lots of people so it is kind of tough to avoid crowds right now but so yeah we're kind of thinking this weekend is memorial day uh weekend and i wanted to go camping but i really don't know where to go where there won't be tons of people (laughs) yeah yeah maybe just get a a snowmobile and snowmobile into the middle of the uintas or something yeah that's true still got a decent amount of snow there right yeah it is tricky i think people you just have to be smart you know i was a little conflicted about leaving and crossing county lines and state lines and whatnot i still don't know quite what the right answer is but if you're reasonable and avoid really populated areas and spread out and are considerate i think yeah i think you're good well i heard sunlight if you can <laughs> i heard sunlight will kill the virus like an injection and if you could like sw- get the sunlight or... in your body yeah then that's... i thought uv actually it's the uv part okay yeah, right, that's what right. you need mm-hmm. okay there's a now he's, now he's on Plaquenil. Yeah, so the president has announced that he's taking hydroxychloroquine. Um, and so, you know, not too shocking. But it's funny because I went well, back. Well, it is. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> you know, really, I understand why there was a lot of excitement about Plaquenil up front. But there's been a series of papers now that have come out. And besides that French study, like, none of them are that compelling to me. And so... Um, yeah, and there's no evidence that it works as a prophylactic agent, right? Which is kind of what so I guess he's using it for, uh, since people in the White House keep testing positive. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, interesting. There was that you know that unpublished Chinese paper that we talked about last time that was like equivocal. There was no benefit from Plaquenil, right? And then the VA, the VA study. study that suggested there might even be increased mortality with Plaquenil, but that was probably attributed to just the sicker patients were the ones who got it, mm-hmm. and it was an uncontrolled Don't worry, we'll talk study. about it this week, too. We got a new Plaquenil study to yeah. talk about. Should we just start with yeah, that let's one, just hop since in. we're already there? Uh, absolutely. All right, this how, one's How yours. many times do you think we'll talk about Plaquenil over the next two to three years? Uh, geez, I hope we're almost done. Yeah, well, I'm just glad that I don't have lupus. Um... So I'm, I'm glad too, man. Yeah, thanks. Um, this this article is called or titled "The Association of Treatment with Hydroxychloroquine or Azithromycin or the uh, the Zithromax, as they say, <laughs> with in hospital mortality in patients with COVID nineteen in New York State." Uh, it was written by Rosenberg and colleagues um, in in New York and was published in JAMA recently, um, May eleventh. May eleventh. Sorry. Yep. So. Um, this is not a randomized controlled trial, um, which we've stated repeatedly about most of these studies, but um, 
It's a classic retrospective cohort study where exposure to hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, or both was correlated with in-hospital mortality. Uh, they analyzed a random sample of 1,498 patients admitted to the hospital in New York City between March 15th and March 28th. They, they discuss the sample and how it was selected and, and whatnot, which is obviously important, but they thought they did a pretty good job with their sample, and I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, data were collected from the EHR, which was analyzed by trained nurses and epidemiologists and corroborated or correlated with a statewide health information network called SHIN-NY. Um, information was collected on COVID-19 diagnosis, demographics, comorbidities, vital signs, lab tests, and chest imaging findings. And patients were categorized into four groups, um, hydroxychloroquine alone, azithromycin alone, both or neither. Those were the, the four groups that, or the four medication sort of pairings that they could have received. Um, the primary outcome was in-hospital mortality and secondary outcomes were cardiac arrest and abnormal EKG findings. They attempted to control for con or co-founders with various statistical tools, which may or may not have been effective. So um, out of 1,498 patients, 735, or 51.1%, received both hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. 271, or 18.8%, re received hydroxychloroquine alone. 211, or 14.7%, received azithromycin alone. And 221, or 15.4%, received neither drug. Um, interestingly and anecdotally, that's much different than what we do, what mm -hmm. we're doing at our institution. I was kind of struck by the percentage, you know, 70 some percent received some medication. Yeah. Um, I have not put 70% of my COVID patients on a med. I don't know what nope. your experience has been. But I will I mean, obviously New York was hit much mm -hmm. harder mm -hmm. and I think there was, you know, some, you know, desperation there sure. to try something that might help. And, and also this was, you know, what, back from... March. March, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. that was kind of before some of these other studies came out. Yeah. But yeah, point. I think here, you know, everyone that's been on hydroxychloroquine or azithromycin, it was either like on a, on a trial mm -hmm. or it was like a compassionate use thing in the ICU, people that were like intubated, I think. But anyway... Yeah, so I thought that was interesting. Um, not surprisingly, and perhaps most importantly, patients who received medications, especially both, had more clinically severe disease. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, ages were similar amongst the four groups. Uh, black or Hispanic patients were as likely to receive medications as white patients. That's nice to see. Yeah. <laughs> and patients receiving the combo or hydroxychloroquine alone were more likely to be obese and have diabetes. So overall in hospital mortality was 20.3% and unadjusted analyses showed significant differences between the group. Now this is unadjusted. Unadjusted. Right. But 25.7% mortality uh, in the group that received both medications, 19.9% for hydroxychloroquine alone, 10% for azithromycin alone, and 12.7% in the group that received neither medication. So mm -hmm. again, unadjusted, but... Kind of like the VA study mm -hmm. a little bit, the, yeah. the breakdown is similar for the unadjusted results. Yeah, fair. So um, following adjustment for demographics, hospital, comorbidities, and illness severity, no significant differences in mortality were found between patients receiving medications versus not receiving medications. Um, the hazard ratio for mortality was 1.35 for both meds, 1.08 for hydroxychloroquine, and 0.56 for azithro alone, all with confidence intervals crossing one. So again, not statistically significant. Um, 
kind of a big question that I had is how effective their adjustment could have been. I mean, we've sort of dabbled in this a little bit with some of the stuff that we've tried to do with PEs. I don't really think this is collinearity, but the choice was the choice for therapy intertwined or directly related to um, mortality, you know, severity right. of illness and, and mortality. And can you really, quote unquote, adjust for that um, is a little bit unclear to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, you know, if the point is that the drugs were helpful, you didn't get that. But if the point is that they're not harmful, then maybe maybe you can, you know, say like, oh, well, you know, they were all they all died about the same. Yeah, um, or, I you know, know how to interpret. Yeah, that. exactly. So we can talk more about that in a second. But um, the secondary outcome findings um, were interesting. Abnormal EKG findings were more common among patients receiving hydroxychloroquine plus azithro and hydroxychloroquine alone, and a greater proportion of patients receiving hydroxychloroquine plus azithro experienced cardiac arrest than those receiving just azithromycin or neither drug. So more EKG abnormalities and cardiac arrest with both medications or hydroxychloroquine, Mm. but did not affect mortality in the adjusted analysis. Um, you know, and again, they sort of explain these way with logistic regression modeling, but, um, I don't know fully sort of what that means. Um, so, you know, yeah, yeah, cause you think, Hey, this patient's sicker, therefore they're more likely to have a cardiac arrest, Mm -hmm. but was it the hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, you know, did they have a prolonged QT? They don't really comment so much on that. Yeah. Um, but they did note that even in the group of patients not receiving mechanical ventilation, so like the less sick patients, there was still a higher risk of cardiac arrest in the people that were on hydroxychloroquine um, yeah. compared to azithromycin. So, so certainly a signal. Yeah. Um, and I think I'm not surprised by these. I guess I think the muddle, the muddy picture of how sick you are, what medications you get, and your mortality remains. So mostly unanswered, mm-hmm. um, and there's a signal for, you know, sort of increased cardiac stuff sure. with the medications, with, you know, kind Which of... Which you didn't see in the VA retrospective cohort, but does seem to show up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, they finish with, uh, clinical trials are needed to provide definitive causal evidence. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I think that's what they say at the end of most of these trials. Right, right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think this is another paper that says maybe pump the brakes on hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin. Maybe it's not the, the miracle drug that, mm-hmm. that, you know, Fox News says it is. Right. Larry right. Ingram, <laughs> talking to you. Uh, yeah. Very cool. Well, maybe mm-hmm. let's talk about something that actually could work. Oh, the, the old triple, triple therapy. Is that what you're talking about? Or? Sure. Let's do that okay. one. Is that yeah. now what you were talking about? Sure. <laughs> I don't know which one he's talking about. Are you well, talking about remdesivir I mean, or are you talking about triple therapy? Because one had a, had at least somewhat of a positive outcome. Let's the other do triple one. therapy. Okay. Yeah, that's a good one. So Spitballing. We, we meticulously plan these out, as you can tell. <laughs> so this triple therapy, so the, the article title is Triple Combination of Interferon Beta, Lopinavir, Ritonavir, and Ribavirin in the treatment of patients admitted to hospital with COVID-19. It was published uh, in May, uh, I think May 8th, 2020. So uh, yeah, basically the thought is, gee, there's nothing that really works. What if we tried lots of antivirals at once? Okay, so the question is, will triple combination therapy with these agents uh, lead to a negative viral testing faster than lopinavir, ritonavir by itself? Right. So the um, question is, does a little extra antiviral, does one 
extra antiviral uh-huh. is two, three better than two. And and you recall from our last episode when we talked about lopinavir, ritonavir, there was already a negative randomized clinical trial for that drug. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and, and I'm, I'm sure this this trial was ongoing before those results were available. But in any case, um, this was funded by multiple grants and charitable donations. It was not funded by a drug company. Uh, the study design is open label, so it's not blinded. It's a randomized trial, but there's no placebo. Although you could argue that lopinavir ritonavir <laughs> might be a placebo based on the prior study. Um, What's and that so, math principle where it's like A equals B equals C? Syllogism? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Is that the transitive property? That, that sounds better. Than, I don't know what syllogism okay. is, but that sounds... It's more of a like English term, okay, I guess. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Uh, anyway, so this is adults with uh, positive COVID-19 tests in Hong Kong at six major hospitals. And it's interesting because the city of Hong Kong actually required anyone who tested positive to be hospitalized until they were negative. Times so they, two. So they kind of had like a captive... Uh, you know, group of people that they could recruit for, for the study. So they Crazy. recruited 127 patients for this study, and which at the time was 80% of all patients in Hong Kong that were positive. So, and this was between February 10th and March 20th. And so the intervention is kind of interesting. So for patients with less than seven days of symptoms, they gave them 14 days of lopinavir ritonavir twice a day, ribavirin 400 milligrams twice a day, and then one to three doses of interferon beta, depending on how many days of symptoms. So if they had one to two days of symptoms, they got three doses. If three to four days of symptoms, two doses. And if five to six days, they got one dose. And then if they had more than seven days of symptoms, they didn't get any beta interferon because they were worried that it would cause like a pro-inflammatory effect. You know, and there's a lot of, you know, suggestion out there that these COVID patients, they'll be fine maybe for a week, and then all of a sudden they have like a big inflammatory response. Mm -hmm. So I think they were trying to avoid triggering that with beta interferon. So you only got that if it was less than seven days. Okay. Super complicated. So the control group is lopinavir ritonavir alone. And they, they comment in the paper that that's because in the Chinese culture, placebos are not generally well accepted. And so you have to give them something. So they figure, we'll give them this antiviral that doesn't work. Um, and so uh, the, so then they randomized them two to one, and then they had to start the treatment within 48 hours. Uh, they included people who were le- at least 18 years old, and you had to have a NEWS2 score of at least one. So this NEWS2 score is developed by the United Kingdom, by the National Health Service, to identify patients at risk of critical illness and decompensation. It's basically a, a, a bunch of vital signs. We use the MUSE score here at the University of Utah, but they call it the NEWS score, and it's very similar. Mm-hmm. You had to have at least a one point on there. Which is so not one, that sick. one vital sign abnormality, right? right? Uh, and then you had to have symptoms less than 14 days. They excluded people who had second or third degree heart block, severe depression, or pregnancy. So the primary outcome was time to achieve a negative PCR result in a nasopharyngeal swab. And the secondary outcomes were time to resolution of symptoms, which was defined as a NEWS2 score of zero. And then they did check daily NEWS2s and SOFAs, and they checked length of stay and 30-day mortality. The primary analysis was intention to treat. And then, so uh, they had 86 patients that were randomized to triple therapy arm. 52 of those patients got the interferon beta, but 34 did not because they'd had symptoms longer than seven days. But they were analyzed. They were still included in that, in in the triple therapy arm. 
Uh, 41 patients were randomized to the control arm, the lopinavir-ritonavir. Uh, base, baseline characteristics were similar between the groups. There were slightly more men in the control arm. Um, interestingly, you know, 80% of patients had a fever, but a lot of the other symptoms were kind of all over the place. So um, overall disease severity was pretty mild. Mm -hmm. So the, you know, the average baseline NEWS2 score was 2, so right. not very sick. And not a lot of comorbidities either. Yeah, and, and the baseline SOFA score was like 0 to 1. Like it was very right. overall healthy people, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But they're all in the hospital anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, so for the primary outcome result, uh, it was timed to negative swab in the combination group was seven days compared to 12 days in the control group with a hazard ratio of 4.37. So definitely had a much quicker resolution or at least much faster time to a negative swab for the primary outcome. Which I think is useful. You know, I think some of the endpoints we've talked about in some of these studies as far as viral load from BALs and respiratory epithelial cells and yada yada. I mean, this is something that, that can be easily tracked. It's uh -huh. a negative nasopharyngeal swab. Yeah. Um, and anecdotally, 7 and 12 days seems great to That's me because I've seen 30 days, yeah. you know, like swabs that are still positive. So mm -hmm. um, both arms seemingly did better than our patients. <laughs> but again, yeah. all everything I say is basically anecdotal. So um, <laughs> you could ignore it if you want. But I thought this was a reasonable endpoint. Yeah. And I think a lot of papers are using this endpoint. Yeah. So uh, secondary outcome results, you know, their time to a NEWS2 score of zero was four days in the combination group versus eight days in the control group. Uh, time to a SOFA score of zero was three days versus eight days, and shorter hospital stay for the combination group. They were nine days versus 14 and a half days. Um, and the nasopharyngeal swab viral load was lower in the combination group pretty much at every day of the study. Um, so there was a post hoc subgroup comparison of the 76 patients who started treatment less than seven days after onset of symptoms. So those 52 patients that had triple therapy, they had better clinical and biological outcomes. Um, but there, but if you looked at all together after seven days, there wasn't a big difference. Mm. Um, but interestingly, like these really just were not super sick people. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to generalize these mm -hmm. results. Like only 13% of these patients required oxygen therapy. Yeah. And right? none died. No one died. <laughs> there was only 5% went to an ICU, but only one of them was intubated. And it was a 96 year old woman with like coronary artery disease. And she lived after 10 days on the ventilator, she was excavated. Wow. So like, they, so they make some comments about culture and sort of the public health models and, you know, sort of their response. Mm -hmm. in I mean, they were very aggressive. Yeah, they were very vigilant. Yeah. They tracked people, they hospitalized people, mm -hmm. they treated people. Um, what would it be I, like to live yeah, in a country I don't, like it, that? Not generalizable. <laughs> that has not been our experience. But yeah, so I think their overall conclusion was triple therapy was effective in suppressing the shedding of the virus if started within seven days of treatment onset, and there was a you know reduction in their news two score and shorter hospital stay. And I, I think that's a, a accurate assessment. I think the big limitations for this paper: patients weren't that sick, so you can't generalize. Um, there were they were able to start a lot of patients on therapy within seven days, which is awesome. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of other trials that have been published, the median symptoms are like 10 to 12 days. And so it seems like they were able to get people on therapy when it might be most effective. Mm -hmm. um, In utero. <laughs> at conception. <laughs> so uh, it was open label, so it's not blinded. And they didn't have like a true placebo group. 
Um, and then there's this funny like subgroup of patients who didn't get the interferon that were in the triple therapy arm. And so it really makes you wonder, you know, if, if the interferon beta is actually pretty important to the success. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but it's just hard to know based on the way they designed the study. So, um, so that was their conclusion. Need, need more studies. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Well, I think, I mean, it was a, it was a cool signal to see that, um, something <laughs> something actually might work <laughs> right right and and it seems like it's the interferon and the ribavirin in my opinion that that's at least in this paper that seemed to have the, the the biggest effect so stay tuned yeah yeah it's interesting about the placebo in chinese culture yeah i hadn't heard that before but yeah none of the other chinese papers had mentioned that so yeah. i thought that was an interesting point uh All right. should we do uh should we do remdesivir next yeah yeah let's yeah. get our our weekly or triple weekly remdesivir dose yeah so let's talk about the remdesivir trial next um so last time on the on the pod we talked about the compassionate use of remdesivir trial that was the gilead Gilead. trial um this trial is published in the lancet april 29th it's from china um and uh, and basically the, t- the title is Remdesivir in Adults with Severe COVID-19, um, and the question is, does Remdesivir reduce the time to clinical improvement in patients with COVID-19, who's funded by the Chinese Academy of Medical Sciences, and the drugs were provided by Gilead, and the study design is a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, oh! multi-center trial, which sounds great. Uh, population was 237 covid positive patients at 10 hospitals in China. 158 received remdesivir, 79 got placebo. The study period was from February 6th to March 12th. The intervention was IV remdesivir, 200 milligrams on day one and 100 milligrams from days two to 10. And the control was a placebo infusion of the same volume. So patients were assessed by trained nurses to capture data on a six-point scale from the last day scale zero. Was seven. Yeah, they, they condensed it. Let six. that be known. Yeah. I caught that. <laughs> You're really up on I'm your like, scales, I'm, man. My ordinal scales. These ordinal scales, apparently they're like a big thing in the virus trials. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, mm-hmm. so yeah, it's a six-point scale from day zero to day 28 or death. And they got swabs for PCR on multiple days in that period. Uh, They included patients who weren't pregnant, who were adults, who had a positive PCR. They had to have pneumonia on their chest x-ray and hypoxemia, which they defined as 94 or less. Right. They say Um, severe, but I'm not really sure. Yeah. I mean, if someone has an oxygen sat of 94, like, or 93, I'm not, I don't get that excited about it. But anyway, or their PF ratio had to be 300 or less, and they had to be within 12 days of symptom onset. They excluded pregnant or breastfeeding. Uh, patients patients with cirrhosis or ASC ALT more than five times the upper limited normal patients on dialysis or if they were enrolled in another study but they were allowed to be on lapinavir ritonavir <laughs> placebo it just keeps coming back <laughs> uh, so the primary outcome was time to clinical improvement within 28 days which was defined as a two-point reduction in their admission status on that six-point scale or live discharge from the hospital whichever came first so six was death Five was ventilation or ECMO. Four was non-invasive ventilation or high flow. Three was hospital admission for oxygen. Two was hospital admission not on oxygen. And one was discharged or discharged criteria. Uh, secondary waiting outcome. For waiting for sniff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Now, the secondary outcomes were proportion of patients in each category at day 7, 14, and 28, um, and then all-cause mortality at day 28, frequency of mechanical ventilation, duration of oxygen therapy, duration of admission, and proportion with a nosocomial infection, and they also used viral RNA detection and loads. Uh, so, um, so there were 158 that got randomized to treatment, 79 to placebo. Uh, overall, I'd say their labs and comorbidities were pretty similar, um, maybe slightly sicker in the remdesivir arm. Mm -hmm. uh, majority of patients, like 80%, were category three, so they were admitted for oxygen. Mm -hmm. Those are the kind of patients we're taking yeah, care yeah, of. Yeah, applicable. Um, so in table two, there were more patients in the control group uh, that had been symptomatic for 10 days or less. Um, and then overall, the median time for symptom onset was 10 days. There were no other major differences in the other treatments received. Um, there was like 30% of patients were also getting lapinavir, ritonavir. <laughs> uh, so the primary outcome result... Uh, time to clinical improvement in the treatment group was not different compared with the control group. It was 21 versus 23 days with a hazard ratio of 1.23. Mm -hmm. uh, in the subgroup of patients who started the trial within 10 days of symptom onset, um, those who received remdesivir did have a faster time to clinical improvement, 18 days versus 23 days uh, with a hazard ratio of 1.5, but this was not statistically significant. 28-day uh, mortality was similar between groups, and there was no differences in viral loads or adverse events. So overall, the author's conclusion was that this was a neutral trial. Um, and so, and, and I agree, um, there are signs that maybe the drug is effective. And I think the problem for this trial was that they were not able to enroll enough patients because they finally got control right. in China. And so... They weren't able to enroll enough patients to hit their target. And so ultimately, the study was probably underpowered mm -hmm. to actually detect the difference. Um, but even then, like a difference on a two-point ordinal scale to me is like less exciting than like a mortality difference. Yeah. Would be nice to see. Um, other limitations, though, I mean, patients in the remdesivir group maybe were a little sicker, like maybe more comorbidities, more tachypnea, higher viral loads, higher percentage of patients who'd had symptoms longer. So really they didn't get on the drug early in the disease course like they were able to accomplish in that Hong Kong trial. Seven so days. You'd like to see that drug started the day of symptoms and see if that made a big, bigger impact. But, but that's not going to be real world anyway. I mean, that's, you know, that's kind of the constant mm -hmm what the party rolls out for all of these drugs, right? Like, oh, maybe if we'd started it sooner, or, you know, mm -hmm. oh, whatever else. <laughs> That's a constant <laughs> refrain from, from uh, sure, sure. you know, bemoaning medication non, doesn't yeah. do anything. So um, Just need to start it sooner. <laughs> right. Well, so what's next for remdesivir? I mean, well, maybe. It's the vitamin D, man. <laughs> no, 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 no. So coincidentally, but I suspect not. <laughs> The same day this paper came out in The Lancet, there was a press release from the NIH saying that hospitalized patients with advanced COVID-19 who received remdesivir recovered faster than similar patients who received placebo, according to a preliminary data analysis from a randomized controlled trial of 1,063 patients. This is the ACTT trial, the Adaptive COVID-19 Treatment Trial, sponsored by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. 
So I guess their data safety monitoring board reviewed the data, found that remdesivir was better than placebo from the perspective of their primary endpoint, which was time to recovery, um, which is seem, you know this metric that a lot of these um, trials are using. They claim that patients who got remdesivir had a 31% faster time to recovery with a median time to recovery of 11 days in patients who got remdesivir versus 15 days for patients who got placebo. And they also claim there was a survival benefit with a mortality of 8% in remdesivir versus 11.6% in the placebo group with a p-value of 0.059. So it's like right there. But it's not there. It's not there. Importantly, the data from this trial are not publicly available. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah. I mean, you can argue p-values are arbitrary. Right. But But what's the point of of picking them if you don't... Abide by them. They need to do better p hacking to get their <laughs> p value lower. We no. If anyone is actually a statistician listening to this, just disregard the last thirty seconds because we don't know what we're talking about. But well, how mean, many how many RCTs with remdesivir are coming out? Because we're enrolling, we're still enrolling one yeah. in a six thousand strong RCT. I thought. Is that the one that's looking at five Seven. days versus ten days <laughs> or know. whatever? That's because that's initially what we were doing. Yeah, yeah, I don't know either. I mean, mostly. We've been unimpressed with remdesivir, I, I would say. I mean... This is my the cynical side, but, like, it just seemed like this press release was timed to, like... Refute? To, to kind of block the, the press around this other Lancet paper. Yeah. And then the FDA went ahead and, like, issued emergency remdesivir use. So, like, our patients can get remdesivir now outside of a clinical trial, mm-hmm. which is bonkers. Yeah. That you could just give it to someone... <laughs> And I, I just, how do you counsel? You know, I haven't actually come across this yet because this has happened since I was last on service. But um, well, how this, do you counsel? So this happened with me. I have a guy right yeah. now who is eligible for the trials, and we talked to him, and he didn't want to do any of the trials. And well, then I was he's like, out. That's right? fine. And then they're like, "But if you want, we can just give you remdesivir anyway." See, yeah, I don't think. And that's... he was like, "No thanks." Okay. Well, at least he's consistent. I think that's. <laughs> I think we still need to give it in trial until we until we know. We, yeah, I mean, we have a, and a I, supply. We haven't used it yet, is what I heard. Right, and I don't know how to. Still, even even. Yeah, I don't know. I think trials are good, and outside of trials, I have no idea really how to counsel my patients. I guess the good news with remdesivir is it doesn't seem to be super toxic, right? Sure. So you're not, like, Safe. killing people by giving yeah. them remdesivir. Can't hurt. Uh, but <laughs> but do we really want, like, a, a super expensive drug that doesn't do anything? <laughs> right, and how many diseases are going to have to come along before Gilead finds something that this can be used for? I think they found it. Y- you do? I Fair enough. This, well, the FDA's... The FDA is behind man. it. Yeah, it's gonna. It's when gonna will happen. Trump be on it? It's gonna be the new Oseltamivir, where mm. we have to give it because it's the only thing we have. But it probably doesn't actually do anything. One day, one day, one day sooner, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'm getting super cynical over here. Yeah. Fair let's, enough. Let's stick with that and talk now about well, convalescent plasma makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> it makes perfect sense. And isn't convalescent plasma just something that, like, it sounds like a group of, like, old white dudes would say, like, stroking their beard mm. at the bedside, like, oh, convalescent plasma. <laughs> it is a nice term. This plasma will help you convalesce. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. So, um, this article is called Treatment of Five Critically Ill Patients with COVID-19 with Convalescent Plasma. It was written by Shen and his colleagues. Actually, I don't know if it's a him. 
Dr. Shen and Dr. colleagues, Shen. his or her colleagues. Um, and it was published in JAMA on March 27th. So I think this is actually the first. Ah, this is old. Yeah, this is pretty old. Oh, but um, this Jenkins, was published online March 27th. I think it was just recently published in an actual journal. Mm, okay, well, I just do what I'm told. So I'm I was, probably making that up. This <laughs> is was, old news. This is old news. I think this was one of the first convalescent plasma papers published. Um, so... The idea is that these antibodies, you know, from those who have recovered from the disease would neutralize the virus, aid in its clearance, and, and you know, help folks recover. Um, it's, this tactic has been used with other conditions, SARS, MERS, influenza, etc. So it's a promising therapy and biologically makes sense. Um, this was an uncontrolled case series of five patients who were critically ill due to COVID-19. Um, they had to have a positive test, severe pneumonia, a PDAF ratio of less than 300, be on a ventilator, and had to have received antiviral treatment with continued high viral load um, and steroids. <laughs> and they continued to receive antiviral treatment until documented clearance. So truly kitchen sink, like everything that anyone could think of yeah. these patients got, including convalescent plasma. So. Ooh. Um, they received two consecutive transfusions of 200 to 250 mLs of convalescent plasma on the same day that it was donated, and the range at which they were given convalescent plasma was 10 to 22 days after admission, so a pretty wide range there. Maybe they didn't give it early enough. That's something that I'm sure we'll say. Um, they measured body temperature, SOFA scores, P-to-F ratios, viral loads, serum antibody titers, and routine labs. They basically recorded and evaluated all the variables associated with disease severity. And they mostly, these patients mostly or kind of got better. Um, you know, the paper has all the microscopic de details and, and quite frankly was a little bit dense sort of going through. Yeah, the, I was shocked how much they included on a five-patient case <laughs> right. series. The, the titers of, of antibodies, the, the titers yeah. of vi the viral load, the, you know. This could have been like a few paragraphs <laughs> yeah, long. Exactly. Yeah, so um, they mostly got better. Um, it's worth noting, however, that two out of five were still hospitalized and intubated at 12 days after transfusion. Um, three out of five were discharged home. At 12 days, sort of like we mentioned, the cycle threshold of the PCRs had increased, which is, which is good. SOFAs had decreased, which is also good. PDF had increased. Inflammatory markers decreased in four out of five patients, and CTs improved. Um, they all had increasing antibodies to SARS-CoV-2, and the authors postulate that given increased cycle thresholds, increasing antibodies, and clinical improvement, convalescent plasma may be beneficial, while acknowledging that the study had five patients, no controls, and that the patients had already had the kitchen sink thrown at them, so who knows? what actually helped them <laughs> yeah yeah um there's a lot more that sort of come out since this uh there was a review on may 1st in the journal of medical virology mm. um that talks about 27 patients so i think mm. um that's controlled a little... or case series? <laughs> oh, all case series yeah um they were heterogeneous and they'd also all received other stuff but they had zero deaths and decreased viral loads so um Stay tuned for cos nice. convalescent plasma. Probably, you know, you can have some transfusion reactions, but probably mostly safe. And um, again, I think biologically makes sense. So, you know, if you want to stroke your beard, think about convalescent plasma. Yeah, I mean, I heard we're doing it right, or we can. We are doing it yeah. here. Um, it's available through compassionate use, mm -hmm. um, and so I don't. I haven't, I haven't had any of my patients yeah, get it. Either. I haven't offered it to anyone. But um, I heard that Tom Hanks was donating his plasma. Oh, nice. And, uh, He's a good guy. I would totally 
take his plasma <laughs> if someone offered it. It seems to me. like that'd just be good juice for you. Yeah. Right? Like, Hank's juice. I want a little bit of that. <laughs> this is, a, yeah, this was also interesting because you got to see what other interesting treatments they were trying oh over in China. Like, they have this drug, favipiravir, that they were giving a lot of them, or, or at least one of the patients got it, um, which is an RNA's polymer- RNA polymerase inhibitor that they use in Japan to treat pandemic influenza. <laughs> then there's this drug called Arbidol, or umafenavir, which is an antiviral medication used in China and Russia. Very popular Very in Russia, popular. apparently. <laughs> like, why isn't Trump taking that? I think we should, should give him all of this. He doesn't get Hank's plasma, but he can have the he other stuff. He can have Arbidol. Darunavir, an HIV protease inhibitor, kind of similar to Lapinavir, Ritonavir. They're using that over there. And then they were using interferon alpha, which I thought was interesting because the other trial we looked at was using interferon beta. And I have no idea what would, you know, make you want to use one versus the other, but that's what they were getting. Uh, yeah, very, pretty interesting. I mean, there was an editorial with it that, you know, comments on back in the 2003 SARS outbreak, you know, there was uh, at least 1,775, or 1,775 patients in, in one study, and 80 of them received convalescent plasma and had a lower mortality rate than the rest. Hmm. But, like, that's still not a controlled study. So, yeah. anyway, it's one of those things that, like, physiologically makes sense. Right. Like, right. passive immunity. I, like I, I will like give that. you antibodies. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I get why people want to do it. Yeah. Uh, I guess it would just be nice if someone was doing like an actual <laughs> controlled an trial. actual study. Huh? I feel like we're asking a lot, though. We are. So we the real question that. is: If you were on the ventilator with COVID, which of these therapies would you want? I like the proning, man. We haven't. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> okay, you can prone. <laughs> okay, but which drug? I'll self prone. Just okay. unparalyze me and I'll yourself. roll over. That's what our trial is doing. It's self proning. So we're telling the patients roll over. Yeah, <laughs> roll we, over we, for we half are an doing hour. Self proning trial here. every two. Days. Anyway, yeah. Which would I want? I mean, I want the convalescent plasma. You, okay, he wants the, the plasma. I don't know. I mean, it makes sense. It yeah. makes sense. I think I would take the. I would take maybe the, the triple therapy. Too. I would. I would ask for the triple therapy. I think with you gotta say plasma. all or nothing. Honestly, like give me everything. Give me remdesivir, hydroxychloroquine. No, I wouldn't want. Throw. No, that, I, I would draw the line there. I would take <laughs> triple, the therapy. triple therapy t- plus remdesivir plus convalescent <laughs> plasma. I would take those three things. You would go for those, huh? Yeah, I. I think. Just to my simple mind, the convalescent plasma actually makes the most sense. I mean. Yeah, it's it's our own. It's nature, man. It's nature's immunity. No proof. <laughs> no proof. No proof. You're right. It's the li- the worst studied, I suppose. Um, the triple therapy looks well, decent and it in only this works if in a pandemic because you have enough people in the population who can donate it. Like right. it's you can't like manufacture this stuff. No. So you have to be getting tons of donations from people who've recovered. Okay, I think uh, we've probably talked enough. Did you have anything else you wanted to say before we go? I think just the things that I said last time continue to be our guiding factors. Clinical equipoise until there's significant and, you know, sufficient evidence otherwise. And, um, you know, find a couple of good resources that you trust. Follow them, including our podcast, obviously. Obviously. And, um, you know, stay safe out there. All right. And and to take us out, I'm actually going to play this ridiculous song I found on Twitter by Rafi who I grew up listening to as a young child. Did you ever listen to Rafi? Uh, not really, no. He's saying like the, you know, Mr. Sun, Golden Sun. Oh, song. yeah, 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 okay. So he's Canadian. Okay. 
he's part of resistance Twitter, which is really entertaining. Like he hates Donald Trump. <laughs> so it's like, it's like child, chi- he writes child songs, but he like hates the president. <laughs> and so he wrote a nice quarantine song. Mm. I'm going to take us out. All right. Take now. us out. Okay. Bye bye. Quarantine, quarantine. Many of us are seldom seen. They gave our lives to quarantine. Uh, someday we'll get it back. Quarantine.